We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. We're preaching this summer through the Psalms of Jesus, which can be a little bit confusing because aren't they all his Psalms? But we're talking about those that he quotes or maybe especially embodies. And today we get to land on Psalm 31 that was so perfectly read by Adam. And thank you also, Ellie, for your reading that was so poised and much better than I did recently when I got stuck on the difficult word, thus, and said almost three times in a row, thus, thus, thus. Yet their pronunciation was perfect, they were poised, but I think about David writing this psalm not like that. This is a grunting and groaning and grappling psalm. This is a pleading and demanding, a slump back, a cry out, a land and fall again psalm. In fact, it's very difficult to even follow the literary structure because it's so meandering. And honestly, it's a bit hard to preach grappling and grunts, groaning. And not just because it feels out of place at Put Together Park Street, but because I don't feel sincere in preaching a grappling prayer without having grappled myself with circumstances, my own stuff, stuff happening in my community. And so openly as David we we'll take traditional authorship, of course, as David so invites us to hear. Because this is a risk. I would rather preach, as Adam and Ellie read, perfectly prepared and poised sermon. It would make me look like a perfectly prepared and poised pastor, which I'm not. But I think this is about entrusting. So even as I preach, I'm committing my spirit into his hand, and I ask that we would do the same. And even if you're not in a position where you're even aware of grappling in you or around you, and you might be in a season of praising, I still think, and I will pray, that God brings to the surface in you that which he's calling you to commit. So let's pray together towards that end. Spirit, would you empower us to entrust our spirit into your hand? over and over, as our very breath and our life, as you show us in your word even now. Amen. All right, so this grappling and meandering, before you start to squirm, thinking, oh no, here we go off into the vast and oft annoyingly ambiguous realm of, we're all in different places. It's in the journey, the wishy-washy, I want to begin right where David does, on the solid theological standing that we're not all in different places. We are all in the same place in desperate need of God and his rescue. And this text is so rich theologically, especially viewed through the Christological lens of Jesus on the cross, which he gives us permission to do. You may have recognized in verse 5. This is what Jesus quotes as his seventh and final word. On, off of his dying lips on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So let's picture Jesus. Let's start there. It's the only place to start, and believe me, we'll end there as well. But teetering on the cross, taunted 
and tethered, having just prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing some kind of separation in an expression of union and communion, of loving triune God, despite and overcoming the eternal separation of death, he invites us all into God-imaged, Jesus-lived union and communion with the Father, the very thing we were created for. And we start there and we say, yes, Lord. That is the gospel. That's the foundation of our faith and our church and why we're here this morning. It is reconciliation. As I often say, touchdown Jesus, or in Park Street parlance, thanks be to God. <laughs> it is right to view this entire psalm through the lens of Christ's death. However, I don't think it's just a little truth tidbit that Jesus plucks from an entirely meaningless psalm otherwise. This verse 5, I commit my hands. In fact, I think it's a gesture of Jesus to pray the content of this entire psalm with our entire lives in our entire community. And so what is the central question of Psalm 31? Into whose hand do we commit our spirit? Or in other words, very simply, in whom do we trust? And you might be like, oh, good, this is an easy one. Kids don't have to go to kids' church. They were like, we're at kids' week. We get this touchdown Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. Teenagers, you might be like, yeah, 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 I got it. This is an easy one. Trust God. Okay, God. Trust in God. Or you might be, have been around a while and you're like, ah, yeah, I've heard these kind. Let go and let God. And I don't know if you're like me, when I, when I was a new believer at least, and, and not that that's wrong, but that kind of sort of churchy talk, pastor speak, just let go and let God, it used to just drive me crazy. Because I don't know what it means. Does it mean just give up and just hope everything's going to be all right? Does it mean give in, just lay around passively, prayer in there? Or he's my rock, my hiding place. You didn't go hide behind a rock? Rocks don't seem like very good hiding places to me, honestly. But here's where the richness of David's entire psalm can be really helpful. So we're going to look through two lenses, two metaphors that he uses. The first is refuge. He uses some synonyms for this. Rock, fortress, strength, deliverer, even good space, good and spacious place. The first is refuge. The second is hand. Hand, which is really rich. And these are overlapping metaphors and lenses. But let's start as David does in verse 1 with God as refuge. Look with me at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. I find it so interesting that here, shame is named before shame is explained. Shame appears before we understand what David's ashamed about. This harkens back to another place where shame is named before shame's explained or even exists in the garden. It says Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. Amazing. How persuasive is this experience of being shamed and disconnected in relationships that even what God designed us for has to be described as the lack of shame. It is communion and union in vulnerable connectedness. 
Genesis 2.25, they were naked and unashamed, is the same thing that David is longing for. He dives into God. He says, take me away from this shame like it was in the garden. And this is a revolutionary response to dive into God, to hide in God. And you may say, that doesn't sound very revolutionary. Everyone hides from shame. Shame makes us hide. Feel the nuance? He hides in God. In the garden, they hid from God. This is a giant nuance. This is already away from shame's shackled flow, which always flows away from intimate relationship and connectedness. Look at the three levels in the garden. After the fall, they hid from God. Shame disconnects us from God. They hid from each other. Fig leaves. Shame disconnects us from one another. They hid from themselves. And you say, wait, what? When it came time to own what they had done, Adam blames Eve and God. Eve blames Adam, or the serpent, and nobody can even find themselves. They're disconnected from themselves, their true self. They can't even point to themselves. It dis shame disconnects us from relationship, from God, others, and self. And yet David dives into God and he says in verse 14 even we jump all the way ahead I trust in you Lord I say you are my God not I trust in you God you are a God you are my God relational intimate language vulnerable and connected language the opposite opposite of shame is not unashamed though it is it's vulnerably connected David dives in in prayer in verse 4, you take me out of the net. What is this shame net? What has David been ensnared by? That they have hidden for me. Who is this they? Enemies, evildoers, evil one, his own flesh. David names it all. He bears it all. And I'll just go through this quickly, but it's a long psalm. But in verse 6, he says there's idolaters who are worshiping against and pulling him against his trust in the Lord. In verse 8, he alludes to the affliction of the hand of the enemy, opposed to God, insinuating the evil one is the source of shame. 11 and 15, my adversaries, my enemies, my persecutors. And again, this isn't just like, oh, I feel like people don't like me. David was being hunted down by his own flesh and blood out for his blood, trying to kill him. Real enemies. In verse 10, honestly confesses that he's weary due to his own iniquity the shame of his own sin and verse 11 i have become a reproach now we don't really say that in english about ourselves i've become a, i ought to be ashamed of myself i'm feeling some shame i'm feeling ashamed but i've lived in a culture where this is actually very common when someone chooses christ the family doesn't say you ought to be ashamed of yourself the family doesn't say oh it's so shameful the family says, you are a shame. You are a, you are a blemish on us. The ultimate disconnect from intimate relationship because what you bring is shame. This is the kind of feeling that David has. He's being rejected no matter what I do. Even standing for what is right, it feels like rejection. Can anybody identify? He doesn't skirt or minimize this. He doesn't push it away. Over and over, as a grappling refrain, he dives in. Here's what it is. Here's what it feels like. Here's where it comes from. And not so much just, oh, hide it and take it, but hide me in you, a location. This is locative. 
a proximity, a relationship. You can't say this about an ambiguous, ambiguous God. You can't say this about a distant God, a nearness. Okay, and in doing so, and in praying so, and in choosing to name this, look what happens. Two things happen that are very profound. Number one, he reminds himself of who God is. Look at verses in 2 and 3 with me. Be a rock and a strong fortress to save me. That's what I need. I need a rock. I need a fortress, and I need it now, he says. He prays this very boldly. But look, look, look at the layers. For you are my rock and my fortress. It's as if he's saying, I need a rock and a fortress. Oh, yeah. You are my rock and my fortress. You are exactly what I need and I know. This is a beautiful picture of prayer. Just the other day, I was having a conversation with another couple, and we were talking to a, 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 a couple that's like mentors to us, spiritual mothers and fathers to us, their grandparents, and we were saying, you know, we just need, we need mentors in our life and people that can help us parent, people who have just godly perspective and experience, and we were like, oh, no, no, you, that's what we need. That's who you are. Oh, yeah, that's who you are. That's why we're here. This is a picture of the prayer that David has. I need a rock and a fortress. Oh, yeah. That is who you are. That is what I need. Now look, look, look. The layers of realization go deeper. And in praying for who God is, David recognizes in verse 3 who he is, who he truly is. For your namesake, you lead me and you guide me, as we just prayed. For your namesake. How dare David say that? He bears the name of God? Well, he's the anointed and appointed king of God's people. Brought in by the covenant of grace to be a people, a family, a household of God. And you and I, by permission and grace of Jesus, by the blood he shed, have grafted us into this covenant family. We can also say, we are your namesake. We're, we're your household. We bear your name. We are reminded of who we are as we're reminded of who he is. In other words, to trust in God as refuge, to enter into prayer, we remind ourselves of who he really is and we find ourselves as his. We remind ourselves of who he really is and we find ourselves as his. His beloved, belonging to him. And this is the deepest longing of our God-imaged and shame-shaken souls. The intimacy that we were made for. And if you're feeling like, oh, refuge and, and rock and fortress, that feels a little bit rigid and hard. I don't know about how that feels intimate. Look, look, look here how David continues to unpack this picture of refuge in verse 8. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, but you have set my feet in a broad place. It's translated, this word, all over the place in different translations. Good and spacious place, spacious place, open place, open pasture. The picture is a picture of a meadow. It's a pasture. The same word that in Job 36 he says, a place with no cramping. A place that's not cramped. Maybe as I get older I can understand that. A place with no cramping. It feels great. Open, released, wide. Picture of God's refuge. Bring, bring the teenagers back in. When my son was 
was, had his 10th birthday. I asked him, where do you want to go for your birthday? And I was just hoping, oh, you know, as we say in Kazakhstan, yoki polki. I hope he doesn't choose those American birthdays, like those arcades or big trampoline parks or, or, or amusement parks or recently went to a roller rink. No, no offense if you've done this, but I just was thinking, this is going to cost a lot of money. And Moses says, I want to go to my favorite place. And I knew what he meant. And I was like, yes, great, cheap. Because Moses' favorite place in Kazakhstan was a mountain meadow. He wanted to have his birthday. So I thought, hmm, 10-year-olds in a mountain meadow, a vast open space. I better bring some toys. I got every ball I could find in the house. I put it in a big bag. We got all the picnic stuff. And we, we came to the trailhead. We walked up this hill. And you got to earn it a bit. It's up for a while. And some of these little guys that weren't in great shape, I remember they started to pant and groan and grunt and gripe. And the inevitable refrain we've all heard as parents, are we there yet? Are we there yet? As we're trudging up this hill, I'm the one carrying the picnic stuff and toys. And you drop over the ridge and you land in this. And if there are people on the radio I have behind me or over me, a beautiful, pristine mountain meadow. And like little 10-year-old human fireworks, they were shot off and gone. Boom! Romping and rolling in the grass, climbing the trees, climbing the rocks. We never touched the toys. The hardest part was rounding them up just to get them to scarf down some cake. Free from phones, iPads, video games, whatever. Free to frolic as God made 10-year-old boys to frolic. We had a blast in this good and open space. This is the picture. God is good and spacious refuge for our weariness from the trudging and tromping, grunting and griping hike up the mountain of life. A pasture with nourishment for our souls. Cut off from cramped and constricted, control-seeking, feeling-controlled, and bountifully freed and shame-shaken, unshackled, spacious place. And this is not a picture of our life. It's a picture of him, our life in him. He's our refuge. As verse 19 says, How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. But it's not always so formulaic and immediate, is it? And every prayer time doesn't feel like bounding through a mountain meadow. I know this. There's travail in prayer. Sometimes prayer feels like silence without an echo. Or even hand-to-hand combat when things are really hard. And here comes our second metaphor, the picture of hand. Picture of hand. And I think it bears unpacking a bit because we have a little bit different nuance and association when we say the hand of God. We think of a helping hand. But as we look through the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, the picture of hand is a metaphor for battle. It's a picture of power, of authority, of control, of possession. Think about Exodus, and as the scriptures talk about what happened in the Exodus, this is the most common refrain. With a mighty hand... An outstretched arm, God delivers his people from the hand 
of the Egyptians. Hand to hand. Out from under the subjection of the Egyptian rule delivered into the more powerful, not less, more powerful, authoritative, more authoritative control and power of God. In Exodus 9, we see the plagues are described as a heavy hand falling on the Egyptians. And not just on the Egyptians of Pharaoh's, but, but on the false gods of the Egyptians. God defeated them by his mighty hand, it says. God crushes them. So when David says, into your hand, I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me, Lord. You have rescued me. This is not just, catch me, I'm falling. Though I think the nuance is there. It's not just, give me a helping hand, this is hard, though I think that's true. David means, I'm surrendering to your authority, your control over me completely. You are my allegiance, you are my master, you are my king. I'm under you, I belong to you. I'm reminded that I'm yours. See, here's the thing, we're always holding hands. Look, at, look again at, at verse 8, our good and spacious verse, with our, with our good and spacious place. It starts off this way. You have delivered me. You have not, I'm sorry, you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. See, the only other option besides the good and spacious refuge of God's hand is the hand of the enemy. In other words, we're always holding hand. This idea that we got things under control or that we're in control of ourselves is an illusion. And look at David. I, I think of this psalm not just as episodic. He's just looking back at the most recent hardship in his life and how he trusted God. This is a survey. He's in a place of transition. And I won't go into that, but he's, you can actually see the levels of his praying in this prayer. He's talking about all the times that were hard. And he's saying, this is where I should have been delivered. And look where that leads. Look where it leads. Look at where trying to control my life leads. I'll just, I'll just mention some of the words. Distress, reproach, years of sighing, sadness and sorrow, weariness, bones wasting away, broken vessel, which actually the real word there is perishing or rotting container. Like David saying, I'm being comp composted. <laughs> I'm compostable. Or forgotten like one who is dead. This is where control of our own lives lead. It is the subtle net. Where every grasp not only is for a cord that will eventually entangle, but it's a leash that leads back to the wrong hand. The hand of the enemy. Whose hands are we holding moment by moment? And if we're not clinging to him, we are desperately grasping for anything. If we're not clinging, we're grasping. And this prayer and our prayers are a vital part of our clinging because he's doing the holding. It doesn't depend on the strength of my grip. I've been working on my grip strength. It doesn't depend on the strength of my grip. Psalm 63, 8 says, I think the same thing that we just read in Psalm 31, 5. I'll commit my spirit into your hand. But it says it a different way. It says... My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I'm holding on with my everything. I'm clinging with my soul to you who holds me up by your power and allegiance and rescue, but also by your gentle 
embrace. And here the metaphors overlap. God is refuge and in his hands. Now I was caught this morning sneaking in one of my practices that I do around here. Someone said, you're, you're walking away from church this morning at 8, around the commons, not towards the church. And I was, I was sneaking one of my practices where I, I walk in the embrace. I choose to walk through the embrace. Now, I love the embrace. It's in our front yard, and I know there's been controversy around it. It's rather expensive and how people think it looks, and I don't want to go into it. But I'll be honest and say I love it. I love it. And not just because it's a picture of one of my heroes, Dr. King, who lived a life of courageous faith. But because of what it depicts in the relationship of him and his wife, Coretta Scott King. See, the artist, if you read on the plaque and do some research, was struck by how in a picture, after Dr. King received the Nobel Peace Prize, he embraced his wife. And he was struck by the embrace because it looked so much like she was upholding him. Now, I don't know if you're a connoisseur or an expert in the art of the hug, but I've been tutored by the best, one Zach McLeod, who if you know Zach, you know there is no other who can hug like Zach. But I studied the art of the hug, and usually with your bros, you do one up, one down. Two pats, no squeeze. And you might start with a, a Adam and I did a pop, a grab, a grab. But it was one up, one down. I didn't go into Adam two down and make him go two up, just like we were dancing in middle school. But with my wife, oh, I feel, I mean, I'm a little vulnerable. I feel more comfortable two down. I can pull her in. She can fall on my neck. Right? It feels a little strange for me to go two up on her. But that's the picture of the embrace. Coretta Scott King is two down. Because after giving a speech, Dr. King is collapsing under her. And there's a picture of their relationship there. She supported him. She upheld him. And it's redemptive. And so when I walk through it, I say Psalm 63, 8. I say, my soul clings to you, God, because your right hand upholds me. It's a picture of this psalm. He is the togetherness that even allows me to cling. Ooh, I told you there was rich theology. That one's dripping. He is the togetherness that even allows me to cling. From Colossians 1.17, he upholds or holds it all together. All my weight, all my life, my entire spirit into your hand, I commit and I fall on you. So here's where the picture of hand and spirit go hand in hand. We got we to land on this word spirit in the, in, in the Hebrew. You land on it and it sounds like it's been landed on. Ruach. Onomatopoetic. Wind. Spirit. Openness. Ruach. And it can mean it has a vast, semantic range. It can mean anything from my emotional center, my frame of mind, my, 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 my thinking, my power life, my sources, my anger. The Spirit of the God, the Spirit of the Lord burned, right? The anger. The everything. So when we say to offer my spirit, we quite literally mean to offer our everything. That inner voice and beyond my eternal salvation in this very moment. My praises and my grappling. So herein lies my aforementioned grappling. 
If I'm to preach into your hand, under your allegiance and authority, upheld by your power and grace, I commit all of myself, and I beckon and I exhort the church to do the same. Have I done this? Do I even know with my entire self or my whole spirit? Do I even know what that means? And i got to be honest, I usually don't. I don't have a clue what's going on inside of me. Ask my wife. It's hard to figure out what that means into your spirit with my entire self. So I thought I'd give it a try. I want to follow David's manual, and I would encourage you sometime to do the same. So this week on my Sabbath, I started to catalog. I just started writing down what took up my headspace, and it was all over the place, but then I started to follow the phrases of the psalm as permission to poke around in my own life. Distresses, right. Signs, sadness, yeah, right. It's been a hard couple of weeks. It's been a hard month. Shame. I, I don't want to write that. What if somebody walks in? What if somebody reads this after I die? <laughs> that kind, no. This is what David did. He wrote. He wrote it. It's there. He wrote it. My delights. My struggles with why my delights aren't so delightful. My graspings of trying to control. And praying as I wrote, Lord, show me what I'm trying to control that is actually controlling me. And there I landed on an interesting new and relevant definition for me about vain idolatry. Show me what I'm trying to control that is actually controlling me. My dreads, my terrors, the whispers. Past and present, heard or imagined that for some stupid reason I have given authority to to define my understanding of myself and this world. The whispers. The persecutors, now that might not be super relevant for some of you, but I have amassed a few, especially at our time in Central Asia, those who were set against us to drive us out of their land, psychologically, verbally, and some even physically. And it's still in there. And it took hours. But in between, as I listed these things, I left space. And I learned this practice from my good friend Chris May, who you, I think, will hear preach next week or soon. And she writes the Psalms often with big spaces in between. And she says, because our lives are woven in the spaces of our prayers. So I put these spaces in between. And I wrote the word at first just hand. Hand. Refuge. And then I started to draw a hand, which was a bad idea because I can't draw. But then I started to see these other phrases that fit in those spaces. So in the shameful place, I saw face of God. Presence that covers and in my insecurities, I saw this phrase of steadfast love, hesed, loyal, faithful, merciful, journeying, listening, powerful, healing love. And as I prayed, none of my issues, I think, or our issues were tied up with a bow. But I was reminded of who God is. And those phrases began to set in. Gracious, abundant, loving God who protects me faithfully and who I am, his beloved, his adopted his. 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 Feel the ruach. Give my spirit. The core of that word actually means wide open space. And hopefully my solitude spills into community just as David's solitude spilled into community. We see in verse 22 and 23 he says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. No longer a meandering personal prayer, but a 
exhortation to the community. All you who wait for the Lord, he exhorts them. Discerning grappling leads to exhortation with gentleness and truth. And I pray that we too would be a people, a discerning and grappling people, who weep through the Psalms. Park Street, you study so well. Continue to study, I know. You read so well. Continue to read. You know, you memorize, you give sermons and Bible studies. But Park Street, weep the Psalms. Rejoice the Psalms. Live the Psalms. Grapple the Psalms. And I know this takes courage to wait upon the Lord as we do so, and it's not as easy or perfect or poised. And I know it's a risk, and it requires being vulnerable and honest about our struggles. And I know it requires relinquishing control, which I hate to do. But it together allows us to lean in and trust that we would commit our spirit into his powerful, protecting, providing, loving hands, a good and spacious place. And so we come back to the picture of Jesus on the cross, and we will end here, where we started. Taunted and tethered, teetering over death. The tool of shame and humiliation. And how does Jesus respond? And you may have picked up on this nuance, but when he prays this psalm, when he translates the prayer, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's an S. So David's psalm of hand, strength, and authority, it's still there. It's, in the sh it's still there. It resonates in Jesus' call. However, the other hand comes in with the S. And now it looks and feels like Isaiah 65.2 that says, I spread out my hands, beckoning my people all the day long to return to me. And you have Jesus as the ever-living parable. Hands couldn't be more opened than literally tethered to a cross. Beckoning, receiving, and embracing all of us into the embrace of God. Longing for his people to return. Whose hands are we holding? Whose hands are holding us? Into your hands, Lord, we commit our spirit. You have redeemed us, O Lord Jesus, faithful God. Amen.